uh, if you would, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in underneath the chairs or in the balcony that you could use this morning. Uh, John chapter 9. It's a little bit longer passage, but I'd like to read it for us this morning. It's just such a, a, a wonderful story of one of the miracles that Jesus performed, and it will help us to hear it this morning as we begin uh, to then look at the details a little bit later. John chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was, and others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. And he replied, The man they call Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? they asked him. I don't know, he said. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. And therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. And finally they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And do you want to become his disciples too? And then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, Now that is remarkable. 
You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father, this is such a powerful story out of the life of Jesus. I thank you for what it tells us about how you work in us to open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind so that we might see who Jesus really is. Father, would you do that miracle in the hearts of those who need it today? And would you enable all of us to see Jesus more clearly and to know your will for our life? Amen. Have you ever noticed how just mentioning the name Jesus can bring tension into a room? It depends upon the circumstances. Obviously, when we're with believers, it's not that way. But if you are in more of a public setting, there are certain rules today, it seems. There are rules that say it's okay to talk about God or talk about spirituality in a general sense, but don't mention the name Jesus in a specific way. For example, Joe Stoll wrote in his book, The Trouble with Jesus, that after 9-11 there was a lot of talk about God in our country. And there were services that were held. There were sort of these generic services, if you will, that came together to call upon God to help. He gave the example of one service where a representative of Islam prayed in the name of Allah. There was a woman who was a rabbi who prayed to God. And then there was a Catholic priest and a Protestant minister from a more liberal denomination. And all prayed, but no one mentioned the name Jesus. No one said he wasn't welcome in that service, and yet the message was really clear in the way that it came across. That in the days after 9-11, all our gods were to be equal. And when that's the agenda, Jesus is trouble. You see, it's hard to fit in one who claimed to be the only way to God when what's being celebrated is a diversity of religions and paths to God. What do you do with this one who claims to be the only way to the Father? And how do you include him? I've experienced that too. A few years ago, I was invited to pray at the state capitol before the opening of one of the sessions of Congress. And it was a privilege to be able to go down there to do that in the opening uh, time that they had together. When I met the chaplain, there was only one instruction he gave me that day. And it was not to mention the name Jesus in my prayer. Jesus wasn't welcome there. Why is that? 
It's because Jesus polarizes and divides people. His claims are exclusive. Now, His invitation is inclusive, totally. Whosoever will may come. His invitation is there for all to come to know Him and receive Him. But His claims about Himself are exclusive. He claims to be the only way to God, and that offends people. We see that in our text that we're going to look at today. This story about a miraculous healing of a man who has been blind from birth. We see the division that comes between those who have faith and those who do not believe in who Jesus is. It is a story that's filled with interesting dialogue, but what I find most interesting in this passage is what it reveals about the progression of faith and the progression of unbelief. And we'll see both happening here. I want to look first of all at this progression of faith. This is the sixth miraculous sign that is recorded in John's Gospel. And again, it is a powerful miracle as you heard this morning. In the entire Old Testament, there are no miracles of sight being restored to a person who was blind. There are miracles of resurrections in the Old Testament too, but there are no stories of a person who was born blind ever getting their sight back. And yet, based on the Old Testament prophecies, like Isaiah 29:18, they believed that when the Messiah came, He would heal even the blind. Isaiah 29:18 says this. Go ahead to the next slide. He said, In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The Scripture foretold of a day that was coming when the Messiah would be here, and He would open the eyes of the blind and they would see. This was the Messianic miracle par excellence. And so it shouldn't surprise us that out of all the miracles that are recorded in all of the Gospels, there are more miracles of sight being restored than any other category. There are seven, as I count them, of miracles of sight being restored to someone. It was that significant to the Jews in that day who were looking forward to a Messiah coming. I think that's helpful for us to understand kind of culturally about what was going on in the world because when I read the Gospels, I think for me the miracle that stands out the most is the one about Lazarus being raised from the dead. We're going to come to that in a couple weeks in John chapter 11. I mean, that's an astounding miracle of someone who has been dead for four days coming back to life. Only God could do that. And yet to the Jews in that day, the miracle of healing the blind was equal to or even greater than raising the dead because no one had ever done that before. And the restoration of physical sight is a sign of what God does spiritually when He opens the eyes of those who are spiritually blind and enables us to see Jesus for who He really is. Only God can do that. Well, let's take a look at the text more closely here. As we see in the beginning of this chapter, in verses 1 and 2, 
They were walking along and Jesus saw this blind man, a man who had been blind from birth, the text tells us. And his disciples saw him too and they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, their question reflected a common belief at that time that suffering was a result of someone's sin. That all suffering was the result of someone's sin. And so they wondered, you know, had this man sinned, perhaps even in the womb? I'm not sure what he would have done in the womb to have sinned to have caused this, but that seems to be part of the question. Or was it his parents who had sinned in some way? And so this child was being punished for them. There was a rabbi prior to that time who had written that there is no death without sin and there is no suffering without iniquity. And so somebody was at fault here, they believed. Jesus corrected their thinking and he said, Neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned but that this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. You see, Jesus opened up a whole new possibility that trials and suffering may occur so that God may be glorified and that He might accomplish His work in us, the things that He intends to do that teach us something about Him, His character, who He is, His awesome power, His love and His mercy. And so Jesus said there's another reason. This man was born blind that God might do a work in his life. A work that others would see as well. And he went on to say that as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Do you catch that? He says, as long as it is day, as long as we are in this life, as long as we have opportunity to use our gifts and ability, we must do the work of Him who sent us. It's not an option for the believer to say, well, do I want to serve or not? Or do I want to use my gifts or not? It's not an option at all. God says that we must do the work that He has given us to do. He wants us to be involved using our gifts in ministry and service and reaching out to those around us who don't know Christ and being a blessing to one another in the body of Christ. If we have gifts of teaching or leadership or mercy or helps or encouragement, it should be the most natural thing of all to use those gifts in a way that honors God. That's what Jesus said. He said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And the miracle that he was about to do would illustrate how he is indeed the light of the world. Look at verses 6 and 7. It's interesting the means that Jesus used to heal this man. He used mud and saliva. The patristic fathers, the early church leaders, saw it as an act of creation. They connected this use of mud and saliva with the miracle that God did in Genesis 2-7 when He formed man out of the dust of the earth. And He created us. And they saw here an act of creation on the part of Jesus. And I think that there's, there's truth there. There's a connection there. There is a creation that is taking place here. A new creation where Jesus is not only opening the eyes of this man physically in a miracle 
but he is opening his eyes spiritually. And the Bible tells us that whenever we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we become a new creation. The old has passed away and new has come. And he gave this man these simple instructions. After he had put the mud on his eyes, he said, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the word Siloam, again, the Bible tells us here means sent. This man was being sent in response to what Jesus had done. If the miracle took place or this uh, touch of Jesus took place near the temple, this man had a long walk to go to the pool of Siloam. And I look at this text and I ask questions, you know, as I read the text and I ask a question like this. What did he think about on the way? If he's got this long walk and he is instructed by Jesus to go and wash himself in this pool of Siloam, what is he thinking about? Is he thinking, you know, why am I doing this? I mean, this isn't going to work. I mean, how can washing in a public pool restore my sight? I mean, if, if this man really is a miracle worker, why didn't he just say to me, be healed, and I'd be healed? What's this all about? And as he is walking along the way, that walk becomes a walk of faith. He needs to trust Jesus in the midst of this. I also think about how for some, the whole idea of using mud and spit as a means of healing would be offensive. You want to do what? You're going to put that on me? You know, that whole idea? I don't like that. Isn't there some other way to do this? In the same way for some, the talk about the blood and the cross is offensive. Isn't there some other way that you could do this to bring healing to my life? And yet there is no other way. It is the means of salvation that God has chosen because sin is messy. Sin is dirty. Sin calls for death. And Jesus chose to give His life when He died on the cross for us. And for those who believe in Him, we know that there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood of Christ... And the cross of Christ become a symbol of love and sacrifice, and it is precious to those who believe. The long walk called for faith on the part of this man. There's a similar story that is found in the Old Testament in Second Kings chapter five, verses nine to fifteen. I won't read it for you, but I'm going to tell you about it. It's about a man named Naaman who is the commander of the army of Aram, one of Israel's enemies. And this man, Naaman, was well regarded among his people in Syria. He had been a, a good leader. He had won victories for them as a nation. And he was well regarded. But he was also a leper. And he had become a leper and there was no hope for cure. Now Naaman had a servant girl in his household one who had actually been captured and taken from Israel, and she was a believer in the one true God. And she suggested that he go and see Elisha the prophet for healing. And so he came. He went first of all to the king, and he sent word, you know, that he was going to come, and he expected to be healed. And the king of Israel goes, what is this guy doing? 
I mean, is he trying to pick a fight with me? I can't do that. Am I able to kill and make someone alive? I mean, that's how he regarded this miracle, this request. And Elijah heard of it and he said, send him to me. So Naaman comes to Elijah the prophet. Elijah doesn't even go out to see him. He just sends a messenger to him and he says, tell Naaman to go and wash himself seven times in the Jordan River and he will be healed. And Naaman was offended. He wanted Elijah to come out, speak to him and heal him. He wanted to be healed on his terms, not on God's. He said to Jordan, aren't there better rivers in Damascus that I could be washed in? Why do I have to do it in this muddy little river of the Jordan? And his servant said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you to wash and be cleansed? And so Naaman went and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan and he was healed. His skin was like new. And he went back to Elijah, the man of God, and he said this, that now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. There is no God but your God. His affliction was an opportunity for God to be glorified. The same thing is true of us that our trials can also be opportunities for God to be glorified if we will trust Him too. He is the same God who was at work in the life of Naaman or this man who was born blind, and He is also at work in us. So going back to the story in John chapter 9, in verse 7, it tells us that the man went, and he washed, and he came home seeing. Now how understated is that? I mean, he went, he washed himself, and he came home seeing. You'd think that there'd be, you know, like a series of exclamation points after that. This is amazing. And the man went back to his home. He went back to his neighborhood. And I wonder, did he run for the first time in his life? Did he stop along the way to look at the flowers and the sky and the trees and the people? Did he shout all the way? I can see. I can see. Did he run into his parents' home and did he yell, Mom and Dad, you'll never believe what happened. I met this man. I want to tell you about him. He opened my eyes and I can see. It definitely caused a stir in the neighborhood. You know, people were there. They saw this man going through the neighborhood and maybe he was running and some were saying, wasn't that the man who always used to sit begging? by the side of the road. And others said, no, 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 it can't be. It's got to be somebody who just looks like him. I mean, he's blind so-and-so. Whatever his name was, we're not even told. But finally, he hears and he insists, I am the man. I'm the one. Then how were your eyes open? Now here's where the progression of faith starts. A progression that you can see as you walk through this chapter. He calls Jesus, first of all, a man in verse 11. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. And he told me to wash. And so I went and washed and then I could see. A little bit later when he's questioned by the Jewish leaders in verse 17, 
Who do you think Jesus is? He calls him a prophet. He held him in high regard. A little bit later, as the debate continues, in verse 27, he recognizes that Jesus is one who has disciples. And the way that he says that suggests that he wants to be a disciple of Jesus. In verse 33, he calls Jesus one who was sent from God. No one could do these kind of miracles except God was with him. And finally, when Jesus comes to him, when he has been put out of the synagogue in verse 38, he calls him Lord and he worships him. He's moved from seeing Jesus as just a man to calling him Lord and bowing before him and worshiping him. Step by step, he comes to believe that Jesus is the one that he claims to be. What's amazing about this miracle is that at the beginning, this man wasn't even seeking Jesus. He was just sitting by the road, a blind beggar with no hope at all of ever having a change take place in his life. It was Jesus who took the initiative to come to him. That's grace. That's grace. This man didn't even really, in one sense, know what he needed or what he was seeking. God sought him. And each step of the way, he responded to the light that he was given until he came to believe that Jesus was truly the Son of God, the Savior who had come for us. How did God open your eyes? What was the progression in your life? You know, it's kind of interesting to think about at times. The people that God used, the little points where He dropped something in your life about the Gospel, or you saw someone else that was a Christian, and that made you curious or hungry or thirsty. And step by step, He brought you to a point of faith if you have come to that today. Maybe you're here today and you've come at the invitation of somebody else, you know, and you're not at that point yet. But God's doing a work in your life. And there are things just like this story today about the man who was born blind who came to Christ that God's going to use in your life. John Trent, who wrote the book The Hidden Value of a Man, tells about a time when he was leading a youth group and he took them on a weekend retreat. And when they went on a retreat, just like our students do, you know, they often invite their friends. And there was this friend who came to the retreat. His name was Mark. Mark wasn't seeking Christ at all. Somebody was reaching out to him, and Mark thought it would be a good time, and so he went. The speaker that weekend was a man named Bob Mitchell. Most of the guys called him Mitch, and Mitch was the one who kind of put together a lot of the details for the retreat. So Mitch was even the one who was talking to the cook about when the meals were going to be served. And every time he talked to the cook in the kitchen, he found out, you know, this cook really loved her work, but it was exhausting preparing all the food, and she always looked kind of tired. And so whenever Mitch talked to her, he'd get up from his chair and he'd have her sit down. Take a rest, sit down, and we'll talk about it. It was an act of kindness on his part. Nobody noticed what Mitch was doing except Mark, this young student who had come along on the retreat. He hadn't come to hear about Jesus, but when he saw Jesus' love being lived out in that simple act of kindness by the camp speaker, he began to listen to Mitchell's talks. 
And later, Mark asked Jesus to be his Savior. It wasn't so much because of the messages, Mark said, but because of the love he saw in Mitch. And he said, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I want to be one too. You know, it always amazes me the things that God will use in a person's life to bring them to Christ. I mean, we've had uh, people that we've brought to church here, you know, and who have come. And um, we had one time, I think I shared with you perhaps about this too, where one of the comments that was made afterwards was just about the singing. You know, and it was like, I've never heard singing like that. I mean, those people sang like they really meant what they were singing about. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's that thing you're not thinking about. It's not the message. It's not something else. But it's, it's an act of kindness or it's the way somebody sings or it's the way that they listen to the Scripture. It's what they pick up on in the service that, you know, you don't even think about. But somebody else notices and says, there's something different here. It's the Spirit of God that's working in people's hearts and lives. And there's a progression of faith that takes place when we ask and invite the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of those around us. Sadly, there is also a progression of unbelief. Often we see that unbelief is based on presuppositions and not evidence. The people make up their mind beforehand not to believe without ever looking at the evidence. I mean, I would run into that in college and I've run into it all the way through. For some people, they have a presupposition about anti-supernaturalism. You hear that sometimes in college where people are going, here's this big word, you know, anti-supernaturalism. All it means is they just believe that, that there's nothing supernatural in our world. There can't be. There's no God. There's no miracles. Uh, the universe is a closed system, and so everything can be explained in purely rational or material ways. Excuse me. In a sense, that's what the Jewish leaders were doing here. Uh, they were saying, Jesus is not God. They had already made up their mind about that. Therefore, this miracle couldn't have happened, and it's somehow we can explain this thing away. And that's what they tried to do. You know, and, and there's some debate about it, though. In verse 16, some said he's not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath, but others said, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? I wonder if that wasn't Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, because that statement, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs, is very much like what Nicodemus said when he came to Jesus in John chapter 3. So they asked the man, well, what do you think? And that was a very unusual thing to do. What have you to say about him? Because this man was a blind beggar. I mean, Jewish religious leaders asking this common, ordinary man about what he thought? It's kind of unusual. And the man declared that he is a prophet. They still don't want to believe, so they want to talk to his parents. Was he really born blind? They're afraid to answer because they know that the Jewish leaders have decided if anybody says anything good about Jesus, you know that they believe in Him, they're going to be excommunicated. They're intimidated. The Jewish leaders continue to press the issue. They declare in verse 24, we know this man is a sinner. And the man who was healed said, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. And they hurled their insults at him. 
And finally, after they put him out of the synagogue, Jesus comes to this man and he calls him to a greater faith. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe. And Jesus openly declares, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man replies, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The progression of unbelief continued here. If you were to trace the steps, uh, they refused to believe in verse 16. They refused to believe that Jesus came from God. In verse 18, they questioned the miracle. In verse 24, they called Jesus a sinner. In verse 29, they show their ignorance about Jesus. They really don't know where He's come from or who He is. And finally, in verse 41... Jesus declares that they are spiritually blind. They think that they see, but they really don't. They are blind. It is an example again of how miracles themselves do not compel faith. Miracles validate faith for those who have eyes to see. A lot of people saw this miracle that took place in John 9, but only those who had eyes to see really saw who Jesus was. Now some of you as adults and children also in our church have read the Chronicles of Narnia series and there are some very interesting um, analogies that Lewis put in. There are pictures about spiritual things. In his book, The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis writes about the creation of Narnia and it kind of parallels in a sense the creation of the world. And it was created through the song of Aslan. And Aslan is the lion who represents Jesus in the book. And this creation song is intended to reveal the majesty and glory of Aslan. And just like in Genesis 1, it is a grand call to worship, to stand in amazement of the God who made the heavens and the earth. But there was one in that story, Uncle Andrew, who would not hear it. And the consequences were staggering. When the great moment came and the beast spoke, he missed the whole point for a rather interesting reason. When the lion had first begun singing long ago, when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, but he disliked the song very much. And so he refused to hear it because it made him think and feel about things that he did not want to think and feel. And he began to rationalize in his mind and say that, of course, it can't have been a lion. Lions can't sing. This is only an ordinary lion like those that are in a zoo in our own world. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And so the more the lion sang and the more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. And C.S. Lewis adds this note, Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. And Uncle Andrew did. He soon heard nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. And soon he couldn't have heard anything else even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear the words. He only heard a snarl. And when the beast began to speak and answer, 
He heard only barkings and growlings and bayings and howlings. He missed the whole thing because he refused to believe. So what do we do in this world as believers who want to share the love of Christ with others? You know, we know we can't make anyone believe. So how can we be salt and light in a world that sometimes just doesn't want to hear about Christ? Well, the three things that we can do are, first of all, we need to pray. We pray because if someone's eyes are blinded, it's because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. So they cannot see the light of the glory of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. And so we pray, God, would you open the eyes of those who are blind. And secondly, we lift up Jesus Christ. We tell others about him when we tell what he has done for us. And thirdly, we live for Christ. We live in such a way that others can see Jesus and the change that he's made in us. And we show his love and his kindness. We live with integrity and honesty. We live in a way that honors Jesus Christ as our Lord. And we pray that God will use us so that his light might shine in our world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this miracle that Jesus did and that he continues to do. I thank you for the initiative you took in reaching out to us. For the invitation that you gave that whosoever will may come. I pray, Father, that you would also use us to be a witness for Christ, to lift up that light and to let it shine so that others might be drawn to it as well. Father, show us what you want us to do in response to this message today at work, at school, with friends, with neighbors, with family members. Help us to pray and lift up Christ and live for Him every day. Amen.